Chapter 5, Part 4 of War in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Teresa Sheridan. War in the Air by H. G. Wells. Chapter 5, Part 4 The Battle of the North Atlantic. As the afternoon wore on, the lower weather abated, and the sea became intermittently visible again. The air fleet dropped slowly to the middle air, and towards sunset they had a glimpse of the disabled Barbarossa, far away to the east. Smallways heard men hurrying along the passage, and was drawn out to the gallery, where he found nearly a dozen officers collected and scrutinizing the helpless runes of the battleship through field glasses. Two other vessels stood by her, one an exhausted petrol tank, very high out of the water, and the other a converted liner. Kurt was at the end of the gallery, a little apart from the others. Got, he said at last, lowering his binocular. It is like seeing an old friend with his nose cut off, waiting to be finished, Der Barbarossa. With a sudden impulse he handed his glass to Bert, who had peered beneath his hands, ignored by everyone, seeing the three ships merely as three brown-black lines upon the sea. Never had Bert seen the like of that magnified, slightly hazy image before. It was not simply a battered ironclad that wallowed helpless. It was a mangled ironclad. It seemed wonderful she still floated. Her powerful engines had been her ruin. In the long chase of the night, she had gotten out of line with her consorts and nipped in between the Susquehanna and the Kansas City. They discovered her proximity dropped back until she was nearly broadside on to the former battleship and signaled up the Theodore Roosevelt and the little monitor. As dawn broke, she had found herself hostess of a circle. The fight had not lasted five minutes before the appearance of the Herman to the east, and immediately after of the first Bismarck in the west, forced the Americans to leave her, but in that time they had smashed her iron to rags. They had vented the accumulated tensions of their hard day's retreat upon her. As Bert saw her, she seemed a mere metal worker's fantasy of frozen metal writhings. He could not tell part from part of her except by its position. Got, murmured Kurt, taking the glasses Bert restored to him. Got, de Warren Albrecht, der Gut Albrecht, under Alt Zimmermann, und von Rosen. Long after the Barbarossa had been swallowed up in the twilight, and distance he remained on the gallery peering through his glasses, and when he came back to his cabin he was unusually silent and thoughtful. This is a rough game, Smallways, he said at last. This war is a rough game. Somehow one sees it different after a thing like that. Many men there were worked to make that Barbarossa, and there were men in it. One does not meet the like of them every day. Albrecht, there was a man named Albrecht, played the zither and improvised. I keep on wondering what has happened to him. He and I, 
we were very close friends, after the German fashion. Smallways woke the next night to discover the cabin in darkness, a draft blowing through it, and Kurt talking to himself in German. He could see him dimly by the window, which he had unscrewed and opened, peering down. That cold, clear, attenuated light, which is not so much light as a going of darkness, which casts inky shadows and so often heralds the dawn in the high air, was on his face. "'What's the row?' said Bert. "'Shut up,' said the lieutenant. "'Can't you hear?' Into the stillness came the repeated heavy thud of guns. One, two, a pause, then three in quick succession. "'Gah!' said Bert. "'Guns!' and was instantly at the lieutenant's side. The airship was still very high, and the sea below was masked by a thin veil of clouds. The wind had fallen, and Bert, following Kurt's pointed finger, saw dimly through the colorless veil first a red glow, then a quick red flash, and then at a distance from it another. They were, it seemed for a while, silent flashes, and seconds after, when one had ceased to expect them, came the belated thuds. Thud. Thud. Kurt spoke in German very quickly. A bugle call rang through the airship. Kurt sprang to his feet, saying something in an excited tone, still using German, and went to the door. I say, what's up? cried Bert. What's that? The lieutenant stopped for an instant in the doorway, dark against the light passage. You stay where you are, small ways. You keep there and do nothing. We're going into action, he explained, and vanished. Bert's heart began to beat rapidly. He felt himself poised over the fighting vessels far below. In a moment, were they to drop like a hawk striking a bird? Gaw, he whispered at last, in awe-stricken tones. Thud, thud. He discovered far away a second ruddy flare flashing guns back at the first. He perceived some difference on the Vatterland for which he could not account, and then he realized that the engines had slowed to an almost inaudible beat. He stuck his head out of the window, it was a tight fit, and saw in the bleak air the other airship slowed down to a scarcely perceptible motion. A second bugle sounded, was taken up faintly from ship to ship. Out went the lights, the fleet became dim dark bulks against an intense blue sky that still retained an occasional star. For a long time they hung, for an interminable time it seemed to him, and then began the sound of air being pumped into the balloonette, and slowly, slowly, Vatterland sank down towards the clouds. He craned his neck, but he could not see if the rest of the fleet was following them, the overhang of the gas chambers intervened. There was something that stirred his imagination deeply in that stealthy, noiseless descent. The obscurity deepened for a time. The last fading star on the horizon vanished, and he felt the cold presence of cloud. Then suddenly the glow beneath assumed distinct outlines, became flames, and the Vatterland ceased to descend and hung observant and it would seem unobserved, just beneath a drifting stratum of cloud, a thousand feet, perhaps, over the battle below. 
In the night, the struggling naval battle and retreat had entered upon a new phase. The Americans had drawn together the ends of the flying line, skillfully and dexterously, until at last it was a column and well to the south of the lax, sweeping pursuit of the Germans. Then in the darkness before the dawn, they had come about and steamed northward in close order, with the idea of passing through the German battle line and falling upon the flotilla that was making for New York in support of the German air fleet. Much had altered since the first contact of the fleets. By this time, the American Admiral O'Connor was fully informed of the existence of the airships, and he was no longer vitally concerned for Panama, since the submarine flotilla was reported arrived there from Key West, and the Delaware and Abraham Lincoln, two powerful and entirely modern ships, were already at Rio Grande, on the Pacific side of the canal. His maneuver was, however, delayed by a boiler explosion on board the Susquehanna, and Don found the ship in sight of, and indeed so close to the Bremen and Weimar, that they instantly engaged. There was no alternative to her abandonment but a fleet engagement. O'Connor chose the latter course. It was by no means a hopeless fight. The Germans, though much more numerous and powerful than the Americans, were in a dispersed line measuring nearly forty-five miles from end to end, and there were many chances that before they could gather in for the fight, the column of seven Americans would have ripped them from end to end. The day broke dim and overcast, and neither the Bremen nor the Weimar realized they had to deal with more than the Susquehanna until the whole column drew out from behind her at a distance of a mile or less and bore down on them. This was the position of affairs when the Vaterland appeared in the sky. The red glow Bert had seen through the column of clouds came from the luckless Susquehanna. She lay almost immediately below, burning fore and aft, but still fighting two of her guns and steaming slowly southward. The Bremen and the Weimar, both hit in several places, were going west by south and away from her. The American fleet, headed by the Theodore Roosevelt, was crossing behind them, pounding them in succession, steaming in between them and the big modern first Bismarck, which was coming up from the west. To Bert, however, the names of all these ships were unknown, and for a considerable time indeed, misled by the direction in which the combatants were moving, he imagined the Germans to be Americans and the Americans Germans. He saw what appeared to him to be a column of six battleships pursuing three others who were supported by a newcomer until the fact that the Bremer and Weimar were firing into the Susquehanna upset his calculations. Then for a time he was hopelessly at a loss. The noise of the guns, too, confused him. They no longer seemed to boom. They went whack, 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 and each faint flash made his heart jump in anticipation of the instant impact. He saw these ironclads, too, not in profile, as he was accustomed to see ironclads in pictures, but in plan and curiously foreshortened. 
for the most part they presented empty decks, but here and there little knots of men sheltered behind steel bulwarks. The long, agitated noses of their big guns, jetting thin, transparent flashes, and the broadside activity of the quick-firers were the chief facts in this bird's-eye view. The Americans, being steam turbine ships, had from two to four blast funnels each. The Germans lay lower in the water, having explosive engines, which now, for some reason, made an unwanted muttering roar. Because of their steam propulsion, the American ships were larger and with a more graceful outline. He saw all these foreshortened ships rolling considerably and fighting their guns over a sea of huge, low waves and under the cold, explicit light of dawn. The whole spectacle waved slowly with the long, rhythmic rising and beat of the airship. At first only the Vaterland of all the flying fleet appeared upon the scene below. She hovered high over the Theodore Roosevelt, keeping pace with the full speed of that ship. From that ship she must have been intermittently visible through the drifting clouds. The rest of the German fleet remained above the cloud canopy at a height of six or seven thousand feet communicating with the flagship by wireless telegraphy, but risking no exposure to the artillery below. It is doubtful at what particular time the unlucky Americans realized the presence of this new factor in the fight. No account now survives of their experience. We have to imagine, as well as we can, what it must have been to a battle-strained sailor suddenly glancing upward to discover that huge, long, silent shape overhead, vaster than any battleship, and trailing now from its hinder quarter a big German flag. Presently, as the sky cleared, more of such ships appeared in the blue through the dissolving clouds, and more, all disdainfully free of guns or armor, all flying fast to keep pace with the running fight below. From first to last, no gun whatever was fired at the Vaterland, and only a few rifle shots. It was a mere adverse stroke of chance that she had a man killed aboard her, nor did she take any direct share in the fight until the end. She flew above the doomed American fleet while the prince, by wireless telegraphy, directed the movements of her consorts. Meanwhile, the Vogelstern and Prussen, each with half a dozen Drachenflieger in tow, went full speed ahead and then dropped through the clouds, perhaps five miles ahead of the Americans. The Theodore Roosevelt let fly at once, with the big guns in her forward barbet, but the shells burst far below the Vogelstern, and forthwith a dozen single-man Drachenflieger were swooping down to make their attack. Bert, craning his neck through the cabin porthole, saw the whole of that incident, that first encounter of aeroplane and ironclad. He saw the queer German dragonflieger, with their wide flat wings and square boxed shaped heads, their wheeled bodies and their single man riders, soar down the air like a flight of birds. 
Gaw, he said. One to the right pitched extravagantly, shot steeply up into the air, burst with a loud report, and flamed down into the sea. Another plunged nose forward into the water, and seemed to fly to pieces as it hit the waves. He saw little men on the deck of the Theodore Roosevelt below, men foreshortened in plan into mere heads and feet, running out, preparing to shoot at the others. Then the foremost flying machine was rushing between Bert and the American's deck, and then bang came the thunder of its bomb flung neatly at the forward barbette, and a thin little crackling of rifle shots in reply. Whack, 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 went the quick-firing guns of the American's battery, and smash came an answering shell from the first Bismarck. Then a second and third flying machine passed between Bert and the American ironclad, dropping bombs also, and a fourth, its rider hit by a bullet, reeled down and dashed itself to pieces, and exploded between the shot-torn funnels, blowing them apart. Bert had a momentary glimpse of a little black creature jumping from the crumpling frame of the flying machine, hitting the funnel and falling limply, to be instantly caught and driven to nothingness by the blaze and rush of the explosion. Smash! came a vast explosion in the forward part of the flagship, and a huge piece of metalwork seemed to lift out of her and dump itself into the sea, dropping men and leaving a gap into which a prompt Drachenflieger planted a fairing bomb. And then for an instant Bert perceived only too clearly in the growing, pitiless light a number of minute, convulsively active animacula scorched and struggling in the Theodore Roosevelt's foaming wake. What were they? Not men, surely not men. Those drowning, mangled little creatures tore with their clutching fingers at Bert's soul. Oh, Gord, he cried. Oh, Gord, almost whimpering. He looked again, and they had gone, and the black stem of the Andrew Jackson, a little disfigured by the sinking Bremen's last shot, was parting the water that had swallowed them into two neatly symmetrical waves. For some moments, sheer blank horror blinded Bert to the destruction below. Then, with an immense rushing sound, bearing as it were a struggling volley of crashing minor explosions on its back, the Susquehanna, three miles and more now to the east, blew up and vanished abruptly in a boiling, steaming welter. For a moment nothing was to be seen but tumbled water, and then there came belching up from below, with immense gulping noises, eructations of steam and air and petrol and fragments of canvas and woodwork and men. That made a distinct pause in the fight. It seemed a long pause to Bert. He found himself looking for the dragonflyer. The flattened rune of one was floating a beam of the monitor. The rest had passed, dropping bombs down the American column. Several were in the water and apparently uninjured and three or four were still in the air and coming round now in a wide circle to return to their mother airships. 
the American ironclads were no longer in column formation. The Theodore Roosevelt, badly damaged, had turned to the southeast, and the Andrew Jackson, greatly battered but uninjured in any fighting part, was passing between her and the still fresh and vigorous first Bismarck to intercept and meet the latter's fire. Away to the west the Hermann and the Germanicus had appeared and were coming into action. In the pause after the Susquehanna's disaster, Bert became aware of a trivial sound like the noise of an ill-greased, ill-hung door that falls ajar, the sound of the men in the first Bismarck cheering, and in that pause in the uproar too, the sun rose, the dark waters became luminously blue, and a torrent of golden light eradicated the world. It came like a sudden smile in the scene of hate and terror. The cloud veil had vanished as if by magic, and the whole immensity of the German air fleet was revealed in the sky, the air fleet stooping now upon its prey. Whack bang, whack bang, the guns resumed. But ironclads were not built to fight the zenith, and the only hits the Americans scored were a few lucky chances in a generally ineffectual rifle fire. Their column was now badly broken. The Susquehanna had gone. The Theodore Roosevelt had fallen astern out of the line, with her forward guns disabled in a heap of wreckage, and the monitor was in some grave trouble. These two had ceased fire altogether, and so had the Bremen and Weimar, all four ships lying within shot of each other, in an involuntary truce and with their respective flags still displayed. Only four American ships now, with the Andrew Jackson leading, kept to the southeasterly course, and the first Bismarck, the Hermann, and the Germanicus steamed parallel to them and drew ahead of them, fighting heavily. The Vaterland rose slowly in the air in preparation for the concluding act of the drama. Then, falling into place one behind the other, a string of dozen airships dropped with unhurrying swiftness down the air in pursuit of the American fleet. They kept at a height of 2,000 feet or more until they were over and a little in advance of the rearmost ironclad, and then stooped swiftly down into a fountain of bullets, and going just a little faster than the ship below, pelted her thinly protected decks with bombs until they became sheets of detonating flame. So the airships passed one after the other along the American column as it sought to keep up its fight with the first Bismarck, the Hermann, and the Germanicus, and each airship added to the destruction and confusion its predecessor had made. The American gunfire ceased, except for a few heroic shots, but they still steamed on, obstinately, unsubdued, bloody, battered, and wrathfully resistant, spitting bullets at the airships and unmercifully pounded by the German ironclads. But now Bert had but intermittent glimpses of them between the nearer bulks of the airships that assailed them. It struck Bert suddenly that the whole battle was receding, and growing small, and thus thunderously noisy. The Vaterland was rising in the air, steadily and silently, 
until the impact of the guns no longer smote upon the heart, but came to the ear, dulled by distance, until the four silenced ships to the eastward were little distant things. But were there four? Bert now could only see three of those floating, blackened, and smoking rafts of ruin against the sun, but the Bremen had two boats out. The Theodore Roosevelt was also dropping boats to where the drift of minute objects struggled, rising and falling on the big, broad Atlantic waves. The Vaterland was no longer following the fight. The whole of that hurrying tumult drove away to the south eastward, growing smaller and less audible as it passed. One of the airships lay on the water burning, a remote monstrous fount of flames, and far in the southwest appeared first one and then three other German ironclads hurrying in support of their consorts. End of chapter 5, part 4 Recording by Teresa Sheridan